and welcome to the first live episode of the Feeling Techish podcast with myself, Lee Crossley. And um, I think we should probably introduce each other because, um, or introduce ourselves, uh, just because it's a brand new series of the podcast. We did the last series all behind closed doors. No one could actually comment or listen live or ask any Q&A, but there might be some new people lis listening and watching. So uh, yeah, I'm Lee Crossley. Um, I'm an engineer at heart. I try and avoid doing live things because they generally work out badly. Um, and I'll hand over to Mr. Andy Lowry. Hi, I'm Andy. I'm a software engineer who has a little bit more than a passing interest in team leadership. I also am a semi-professional yak shaver. Hard to follow that. Um, but I'm Lauren Bevan. Um, I'm an ex-clinician uh, data scientist, and I'm not a, a coder or a technologist, um, but I've got quite a big passion about how technology can make a difference to people in healthcare across the world. So that's me. I don't think you can say you're not a technologist, Lauren. I'm not sure how that, that's how it works. Not compared to you two. I can do some cursory JavaScript and a bit in Python, but um not not uh not to a standard I'm particularly proud of. Not yet anyway. We'll get there. It's all right. That's that's every engineer under the sun, you know, never to a standard that they're actually happy with, me included. Yeah. I've recruited front end engineers with less qualifications than that. So. <laughs> so so this episode, um what we're gonna be talking about is um open source. And uh we had a quick quick discussion before the before we went live and we decided that Lauren's going to lead it because neither myself or Andy can actually stay on track. Um, so we're going to go through yeah, the good, the bad, the ugly and the downright mustardy um, of open source. So with that, Lauren, I'll hand straight over to you. Yeah, so the first thing we wanted to talk about a little bit is one of the common misconceptions around open source equaling free and, and actually what that means for people and how that can sometimes put people off um so i guess lee and andy is that a fallacy that you've fallen into before or um know of some more stories around people who have i think you need to be yeah aware of the licensing conditions some people don't know their um mit from their um gpt to their ese to their various other letters and acronyms not all of those are actually licenses by the way um and it's important to kind of check to make sure that what you are using and where you've sourced it from um, means that you can use it in your software. If your software is commercial, you might not be able to use it or you might have to open source your software yourself. Um, it might carry through that license. Um, and it is something that a lot of people overlook. They just kind of see something on GitHub or um, a, a site like that and, and see maybe a readme and see maybe a license file. Don't think many people actually even click on the license file and most of them are actually boilerplate anyway and wrong licenses associated with things so i think it comes down to double checking and a bit of due diligence around what it is you want to use and is it actually free and what the repercussions of using it are yeah there are actual i think um osi open source initiative uh, they they recognize licenses that do allow you to uh, charge for, for commercial use and for any use of any particular use you want and it still be uh, technically open source. Uh, so yeah, definitely, definitely read the fine print uh, on on all licenses. And uh, one of the uh, one of the often common problems with it is uh, is believing that it will always be um, the same license as well. Uh, you sometimes find that uh, different versions have different uh, license agreements, and it's it's important to keep in uh, 
a bit of an eye of when you press the update button on uh, npm or something like that that you might be pulling in something that you're not licensed to use anymore um i'm using that as a specific example because that actually happened to me uh, uh the other week i um, pressed the update on uh, on a package which um, was previously free for commercial use and the new version turned out it wasn't and it was actually purely by uh, accident that we discovered that it wasn't free for commercial use so we uh we, we we dropped lucky there because we almost uh, almost did something we shouldn't have done. Uh, but yeah, it's worth checking. I think there are um, actual application um, actual packages which will scan your things like your npm uh, lock files and things like that for licenses and will let you know if any of the licenses change and things like that. So I've considered putting them in a in a CI pipeline in the past, so um, it would fail if the licenses changed and we didn't uh, accept it. It uh, seems like a good way of uh, preventing yourself from doing something you're going to later regret. Yeah, I guess your CI/CD pipelines is a good place because if you've got vulnerability checking and other bits in there, it's a good place to to make sure that you're you're deploying something which you should be deploying. I guess it doesn't happen with everything. I mean, npm is is pretty good at you know looking for scanning for vulnerabilities and and looking at you know licenses and things, but. You know other software that you might be even copying and pasting and using other package management systems you know which are available for the languages that lauren maybe can't write um uh you know um yeah slightly different and different setups and the way that they're used and i think linked to that i think it's one of the, the misconceptions again around it being kind of giving away the crown jewels to people so particularly in public sector it's one of those things that people who develop software are not necessarily that keen to, to make it open source because I think they there's a perception that it then becomes non-commercial, non-viable or not safe. Um, and I think there's some strongly held views, particularly in this group, particularly in me, around like public money for public code and things like that and actually how that can be facilitated through, you know, mandation of, of open source on, on some of those things. Talking about the crown jewels, if you think about the crown commercial service and particularly sort of GDS, they actually specify that if you're creating a public service, then that source code should be open source and coded in the open from day one, unless you have a very good reason not to, um, which is a good standpoint. And if there was, you know, a lot of uh, money in that code, um, then maybe they wouldn't do that. Um, but the fact is that people don't open source things because they want to make um uh, money from that particular component is generally because they want you know help with it or um yeah they want community input so that's what open source probably means more than um i'm opening up you know my my private chest of secrets and wonders um it's it's not really that at all i've worked um somewhere before where we haven't open source things and sort of tried to fight to open source things and it, it was that sort of lack of misunderstanding that, you know, people aren't going to create another company just like this one because you've open sourced, you know, a couple of modules or core components that other people might help you with, um, contribute even back to, and that's, you know, free um, bug reporting, vulnerability checking, all the rest of that kind of stuff. Um, so it is, it is a shame when, you know, companies don't see the value in open sourcing the things themselves. But going back to that GDS and public procurement thing, I don't think it's policed say well enough so I think it is standard in there but it actually finding all that repository around all those kind of public 
um, repositories is, is actually phenomenally difficult to do. So there's one thing about making it open source, but there's a second thing about are you making it accessible? So the next person that comes along can can build upon it and can understand actually what's there and make sure that that doesn't get paid for twice and that people are kind of encouraged to use what's already there. I think that's, that's a, a big issue that I see quite a lot around. You know, it, it might be open, but where is it? It's ironic that actually, because you know, one of the GDS assessment items, or multiple of them, are making sure that your reason components across government. <laughs> um, GDS stands for um, Government Digital Services, by the way, if, if anyone doesn't know that acronym. Um, so, yeah, literally, you get a GDS assessor for GDS projects that will come in and say, "Have you looked and um, evaluated other potential existing?" Um, open source products or um, cross-government products that maybe another even department have written. But like you say, Lauren, that discoverability is very tricky. Um, you know, there isn't a very easy way to kind of go, right, then what are what is this government department doing about this? What's this government department doing about this? Interdepartment comms themselves are probably pretty limited. And they are better for finished products. But again, you can have, it's very easy to see, and particularly in the past year when there's been so much rapid development, lots of people coming at the same problem in the same way. And because those pipelines are actual of products that are being rapidly built are all being done separately in silos, then it reduces the impact that the open source can have on it because everybody's trying to solve it in a slightly different way. And then you end up with potentially loads of open source things that might be slightly better or worse when you probably would have been better to combine them all into one. There's a there's a uh, problem there that also um, happens in the uh, commercial world and even all other worlds as well when it comes to software is the uh, there's a little bit of not built here uh, syndrome comes in there. Uh, you have a lot of very similar packages solving very similar problems in in, a, in not all well not all in a very good way and uh, so there's um, certainly. Uh, our favorites npm and nuget and all these package the environments if you go on there and have a look for things you usually find about seven solutions to to the same to any problem and uh, you spend a lot of time trying to work out which particular one of these seven solutions you want to you want to pick yeah so andy when when you're looking at those because i mean i i do it probably daily looking around packages and looking on let's say github you know there are other alternatives um let's say you're looking for a plugin for a particular thing, um, and you say, right, there's seven different packages, all with very similar names, very similar repos. One's not been updated for 10 years, um, but actually doesn't have any issues. <laughs> One's been updated, but very, very recently. Seems to have a lot of issues, must have a lot of users. But hmm, it was only started a month ago. How mature is that? There's a whole raft of reasons why you kind of look and say, hmm, should should we pick this one over this one? And so, what what do you kind of do to to make that decision? So, one of the things that I actually use the most is uh, the number of uh, forks and stars on the GitHub repo. Uh, that's just that's like a really quick measure. If if it's got one or two, and it's something that's really common, then I generally just ignore that package. You know, other people have decided it's not worth looking at, so I'm going to go with them uh it's which is it's a shortcut it's a shortcut to getting to, to getting a good answer and it doesn't always work but it's a good way then you know obviously looking for how frequency of commits github and again is very good at that it gives you a good idea of how often uh, people are contributing and committing to it look for builds that's another one i do as well if there's an actual uh build process going there it's particularly the 
again, GitHub, the uh, the green tick on the commits is, uh, that tells you that it's passed a, a, a continuous integration uh, build and it's passed some tests, then that gives me some confidence as a quality. Then start looking at licenses and, uh, and issues and um, pending PRs. And uh, yeah, those kind of things. They're they're, they're the best they're best things I find. Uh, although I have also seen um, projects that have got all of those things, and then I found a small bug and submitted a PR, and uh, it's never heard from again. Welcome, <laughs> you're now managing and maintaining your own published book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Done that. I've done that on some. Uh, some of the lesser known, some things where there hasn't been much choice. That's happened to me a few times as well, where I've ended up uh, maintaining my own fork because the original uh, developer is just long gone. I think, I think that's one of the things that people that stops people using it in some of those critical public service stuff is around touching their maintainability. But I think there are quite a lot of benefits. We've obviously talked about some of the, the tricks and issues, but... I guess when you're thinking about doing it, what do you think the key benefits are around why people would want to go open source, given there seems to be a bit of, well, too much negative press about what it is and misconceptions about what it is? I guess it depends what you're looking for. Um, so, you know, open source software, software is is huge. <laughs> it's not, it, there's many, many categories within that. If you're looking for a component or a module for a system, that's that's quite small and discreet, you probably want a best in breed open source project that's tried and tested, deployed by hundreds of companies, you know, large organizations and maintained with them um, or, con or contributions coming from them rather than writing your own and rolling your own. Um, I don't know what you think, Andy. Yeah, that slightly lost the question there, but um, yeah, I think uh, that's uh, that does happen. Um, the problem we often have, though, is that uh, I mean, sorry, I've lost the question. But uh, one of the issues I have is that I've, you know, I've, I've had myself uh, taken on a project and uh, got very excited about it because it's very usable at the time, and then I've changed companies, or you know, I suddenly I'm not using that particular thing, and it's very easy for them to uh, to forget them. What, what? Uh, so one of the advantages is that somebody else can take that on if need be. So. Um, Whereas uh, for um, uh, commercial software, closed source in particular, uh, you, um, you if that company goes, you've, you've lost it. You've lost the product forever. Uh, uh, whereas with open source, at least there's somebody there who can potentially take it over and continue. Um, it's just a it, it's it's kind of another form of security. You lose the you lose the security that you get from paying somebody to do the work. But you gain that extra security that you know it's not just going to disappear off the planet all of a sudden one day. You kind of always have that option, though, to kind of pay someone to do it. I mean, I see open sources. Maybe if it doesn't get you the whole way there and it isn't a complete off-the-shelf product, it could be that there is, you know, a huge amount of legwork, um, let's say like a crypto library or something, <laughs> that, you know, I'm all right maintaining that or, or you know, paying somebody to maintain that. Um, if you look at the NHS, for example, um, they, they worked with a technology at NHS Digital called uh, React by a company called Basho. Unfortunately, they went under, but um, NHS Digital created their own fork of it and went on to, you know, for a long time, whilst it still even do, maintain that fork. So they wouldn't have written um, that sort of database technology themselves from day one, but it was a very good option at the time for them to um, 
basically back it and then continue to help develop it. So, you know, there's always advantages to it. It always depends what the open source projects and component is. And I don't, I don't, don't really want to say this on the live feed, but I'm a terrible person. Um, and I do um, have a number of open source projects with the best of intentions that, you know, were started like seven, eight years ago, um, probably about 150 of them. <laughs> Sorry to anybody who's um, watching me on um, Twitter. Yeah, I will respond to these 200 unread messages on GitHub at some point. Um, so, I mean, the, the best of intentions set out, I now think that, you know, I'm leaving them up. I'm not even marking them as archives because they are still useful projects. Um, and what I would love to see is somebody pick those up and run with them. So generally what I've been doing is if anybody does a pull request that looks semi-sensible and I need to get through that list of pull requests, um, I just make them a maintainer or a contributor, uh, sorry, a maintainer straight away so that they can, you know, run with it and publish it and approve other people's PRs and build up that sort of community around it so it's not reliant on just one person because as someone's rightly said on the chat, you can't expect things to be maintained forever. You know, other people move on to new projects and they have to kind of, leave some things behind. And that's just the kind of the way of the world it happens within organizations and non-open source stuff as well, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think there's a couple of examples as well where it's gone the other way than the NHSD one with React where, you know, commercial organizations have solicited it into to open source and left it for, for others to kind of, to build it out. So they've kind of say it's gone the reverse of that. Um, but yeah, I agree around the maintainability, but it makes it somewhat less predictable to understand how quickly things are going to get fixed, which I think is one of the things that makes people slightly nervous about using it. The getting fixed aspect, um, I mean, sometimes open source projects will have a sort of premium uh, or a, a commercial offering that complements it, that has an SLA or, you know, bug fixes and things wrapped around it. Um, huge open source projects do generally attract that over time, you know, because they want to make money. Um, and, I've, you know, I've, I've been places before where that's been part of the selection criteria. So they've sat down and said, is there a commercial offering? Can we bring in an SLA? Um, can we do something to sort of mitigate some of the risks of, of taking this product? Um, and sometimes, you know, using the open source product gets you to a point and then there might be a commercial product that you'd want to switch out with because it's so great and there's loads of new features in the commercial one. You, you know, you've taken that carrot and you really want it. So, um, so yeah, I think uh, to kind of summarize that point is um, open source, there might be a commercial alternative, which is um, better, viable or um, meets your SLAs for your product or customer. Yeah, a particularly good example uh, that I've found of uh, a, a sort of open source with uh, paid uh, support was uh, Elasticsearch uh, Elastic. Uh, but I bring that up particularly because they've got extremely controversial uh, this year. I don't know if anyone's been following the uh, the story with Elastic. Um, basically, what's uh, the, I'll try and do the short version of the story. They um, they built uh, this system called Elasticsearch about 11 years ago, uh, which was open source. Uh, there was a company built around it that mainly did support and services around it. At some point, they decided to uh, produce a managed version of that service. Uh, so you basically, rather than having to host and running yourself, you paid um, Elastic. Actually, somebody I think a third party did this actually first, and then they bought that company, to be fair. Uh, but they, uh, you pay them 
to host it and you run it and you just connect to it using HTTP uh, and you just say how many nodes you want and how, you know, how much you're willing to pay for and things like that. And uh, they, this system was reasonably successful. And uh, then AWS decided to uh, take um, the Elasticsearch uh, open source and do the same thing with it. So they've built basically a competing system uh, that is based off this open source software. However, AWS have chosen not to be nice and contribute back. Also, they've not chosen to be nice and uh, work with Elastic um, it, it, to, to sort of compensate them in some way for the work that, that they've done. Uh, this obviously has become a real issue for Elastic, uh, who, uh, with some, I think they probably, you know, nobody's really broken any rules here. AWS have kind of done the right thing. Um, but they, um, they've done something they're at least allowed to do. It's just a little bit outside the spirit. Uh, yeah. of, uh, of I think the spirit is not in the spirit of open source. That's the word. No, it? but the uh, Elastic are getting a lot of stick now because in their most recent version, they've changed the license agreement. So now um, the license is not an OSI uh, license. It's their own license that basically says you cannot use it for a build-your-own managed service. Yeah. unless you contribute all of your managed service functionality back to the original project product. Oh, right, all the managed service functionality, not just the yeah. products. Right, okay, so it's all the derived work. Oh, yeah, yeah, so they, they've, they've, yeah. they've really taken uh, taken quite a big leap here. And I I have a bit of, bit of uh, uh, sympathy for both sides here. Uh, AWS have not really done anything wrong, but also they're pretty much killing Elastic's business model. Uh, and there's a little bit of are you just starving the golden hen, gold goose here? You know they, uh, they've um, they're, they're this they've got this these people who are making this extremely good product. To be fair, and uh, basically they're just making sure they're not getting paid for it. Um, then, uh, and of course, uh, but everyone's backlashing against Elastic at the moment because their license is no longer open source anymore. Uh, yeah, it went to the other extreme. They, you know, they should have. They should have got the right license in the first place rather than going too extreme because they've been been burnt. Um, I don't think Amazon have done anything wrong. And also, I think that that's a good model for, for organizations moving forwards. If you've got an open source project and you need that guarantees, that SLA, you don't want to be managing you, the, the tin it sits on if it is you know, that kind of web service or something. Um, having a managed service wrap from one of the big cloud providers or multiple big big cloud providers is good because then you can go, right, okay, so we've got an Elastic compatible um, service or app, whatever it might be, and we can pay um, one of the big providers and not just one, they don't have the monopoly to use that open source technology. And if I want to switch in the future, yeah, there might be a little bit of work, but you know, we're not completely changing database tech or whatever it might be. I mean, Elastic is expensive anyway. <laughs> so I think that's possibly one of the problems with Elastic, not just the rest of it. Um, but you know, they, Elastic have their own managed service offering as well. They're just not, you know, Amazon. So uh, I, they, their their own their own managed Elastic uh, product also works within AWS, and it can be paid paid for through AWS Marketplace. Uh, they also have a GCP and a, and a Alibaba uh, and a few other cloud provider versions as well. But they all have nice uh, agreements with Elastic to. Uh, for, for reciprocal uh, uh, contributions and some payments, pre presumably, uh, it's only AWS who have chosen to uh, 
really bite the hand that feeds them. That's the phrase I was looking for, really. Yeah. Okay. Uh, security on Ali Cloud. You 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 want to see that? <laughs> Talking of security on it, that's another thing because there is, I guess, there's something about how people use open source, not just for sort of commercial endeavors but around whether or not it leaves you open to vulnerabilities which i think is another again misconception particularly in government services around you know how do we do our diligence on this to make sure that this is kind of safe and secure and that we're not leaving ourselves open because you've got so many contributors how how can this possibly be safe i think there's a kind of mental model issue with it that, that goes goes along um so I know that there was, I so we were talking about it the other day, the BA scandal around how that worked and that that was kind of linked into the open source model. But I guess, what do we think in terms of how you're able to test the sort of contributor access if you want everyone to do it? How do you, how can you police the intent of people? So the BA, the BA story, that's a great one. I use it as an example all the time, probably wrongly because I keep sort of skewing it to fit the, <laughs> fit the exact purpose and point I'm trying to make. But um, it was, you know, a contributor that managed to um, to get some malicious code on a sort of uh, dependency of a main package, which was included on the BA payment page. And the BA payment page, you know, there's lots of um, packages on there. They try to limit the amount of um, sort of open source or third party contributions or scripts, et cetera, that run on things like payment pages for good reason, because you want that um, as tight and limited as possible. In my view, you know, checkout pages should be very, very small. If you're typing in credit card details or just pay somebody like Stripe that's very good at it to give you a little iframe um, and then you don't need to worry about it. Um, but generally speaking, if it's not, you know, a payment page or something, you're pulling in something, don't try and police the um, the actual contributors to the open source package. No, nobody's got time for that. Um, so effectively, you need to look at the versions that you're pulling in as part of your pipelines, like Andy was mentioning before, is make sure that you're doing the proper um, vulnerability testing um, and also, you know, proper um, uh, sort of security fuzz testing. So it could be that you're doing um, spinning up, you know, fake browsers, fake devices, making sure that it's not sending network traffic out so that it shouldn't be like in the case of BA where it was sending key presses of credit card numbers back to a third-party server, like you can capture that kind of stuff. That's a known pattern. It's basically building up lots and lots of patterns of, you know, things that could be malicious over time and checking for them before a release and fixing your versions. Don't just go, oh, let's upgrade the version of that all the time because, like you say, you can't police and check and test all of that. If you've got the most brilliant CI um, continuous integration pipeline in the world, it's probably not going to catch everything all the time and, you know, zero-day um, vulnerabilities um, and CVEs. So basically test the thing, automate as much of it as you can, and fix your versions is the best way to kind of deal with that. And, and there's a lot of good advice, and I think it's kind of bringing us on to, obviously, my my pet love of, of NHS and open source around... I guess one of the issues that it's struggled with, not just around that kind of GDSE type stuff, is is around like EPR vendors and the use of EPR vendors because there's a couple of big juggernauts and they're not very keen on sharing at all. Um, and it's quite a closed system and lots of people suffer as a result of it. Like they get paid a, an awful lot of money for, for something, which then is basically a closed box to not integrate with anything else. And I'm pretty sure that even APIs or 
open source would be a good first step around forcing some of those pricing some of those lock boxes open um but the the organizations i think are patchwork well they are patchwork and they're a jigsaw but i just don't think that they push vendors hard enough to make that part of the offer so when they're going out to procure stuff it's not something that people look for it's functionality first and foremost for reasonable reasons but she doesn't seem to be contracted for and I'm always like baffled about why it's not in commercial clauses when it really should be and then you've got to wait another five years or 10 years or however long before you can procure it again yeah and I just don't know I just think, again, going back to those kind of fallacies around open source, you can still make money from it. You can still have a commercially viable business, but it it forces you to work in a way that doesn't seem to be very conducive to the way that those software vendors into the NHS want to act. And I just, I I guess I just don't, I don't understand why, if you're building software for clinical purposes, why, you know, surely there's some altruism in there because you've chosen that as your calling and that's what you've chosen to do. I don't quite understand the, the method then behind keeping people into like 10 or 15 year deals and making sure that it's really hard for them to to operate outside of your kind of product ecosystems. You're not Apple. I, I, I guess I just, yeah, it's my rant. I don't understand it. I think it's going to change that. I think that unfortunately, because of this slow moving public sector and NHS when it comes to um, digital services, you know, the, the steps are in the right direction. There's key people making all the right noises. Um, it's a case of you've got these huge, you know, let's say organisations that have integrated with core NHS services for a very long time. Um, and, you know, they want that monopoly. They want everybody to have to integrate with them. They want to be that intermediary and continually take that cash. Um, what, what needs to happen is um, it's on the NHS to not force, you know, uh, contracts on on those big players it's for the NHS to actually sit down and say right okay we've got a new way of operating we've got you know these shiny graph APIs and you know easily accessible services um, that sit over here we still have all the old stuff and you can still go via the you know the big guys that do all of this stuff but we've also got this parallel system and parallel services that we've been designing and, and helping build which is all open sourced if you want to integrate with these and use some of our you know components and SDKs for them knock yourselves out let's let's go for it and if you want to open source them as well even better we're more likely to pick you for help and procurement and things in the future um and then what will happen is the big guys hopefully go hang on we need to do something with those funky new little services over there because everybody's starting to migrate over onto these things yeah i hope so i just think it's not well enough understood how things could be um because i think people are so used to the kind of inertia with it so I think it's around someone needs to take a um, someone needs to take a punt to show how it can be done properly and how it can be done well to be able to prove that it can be done safely and securely and you don't need to compromise on it and just because you don't have you know you know a billion pound American conglomerate you can still do some pretty awesome sort of clinical software development and I think there are some smaller companies out there but I mean I used to be a deputy director of finance in the NHS and I wouldn't have been looking for those sorts of things when I was buying stuff when I was back in service 12 years ago so I kind of admit culpability which is part of the reason why I'm probably so passionate about it because I probably missed it when I was signing those contracts a while ago um and I think 
But I do think there needs to be some sanctions in there because there'll be plenty of people who are signing those orders off who are just like me 12 years ago. And they need to be given a bit of guidance about what to look for and how to do the diligence on it. Because open source just sounds a bit scary. Sounds like any, any you know, any muggins can kind of add into it, screw it up. Um, and if you're dealing with critical information, you just don't, it, it feels too risky. Whereas... You know, How's any difference to closed source, Lauren? I mean, I know some people. <laughs> that's exactly it, right? That's exactly it. It's it's not, um, you know, it's not a massive change, but for some reason, because you've got someone you can point at and say, you know, it went, it system failed this morning. No one's been able to do kind of clinical notes. We can't, you know, we can't do any order comms or whatever it is. You you've got someone you can point at. Um, and I think that is something that the NHS, I think, really, really values, but over and above making something that other people can build on and can be interoperable and functional. Um, yeah, it's just been made illegal, I think, this week um, in the US for things not to be interoperable. So I don't know whether or not we we kind of have to wait our turn for the US to implement through policy changes stuff that we will then be the beneficiaries for because we're just we're tiny compared to that market. They're not going to respond to our market forces. They'll respond to somebody else's, which is depressing, I think. Well, I've not seen too much of that, but I can't wait to see how that's enforced. <laughs> I know, I know. But it's causing issues. Um, and it's one of those things. Say Estonia, Estonia have got it licked. And then there's a few other kind of companies out there who are doing it and are kind of doing it and selling that as their point of difference. And I think if they start to get a bit of a stronger foothold, then maybe that will change. But I'm not sure up until that point people will have the desire to want to do it because it does feel risky. And I don't know how we educate people in that it's not as, you know, it's not as awful as it sounds. It's not free for all. Um, yeah, but I do think it's what we were talking before about that predictability of support. How do you get SLAs in place? How do you de-risk it? I think are key things to making people feel like it's a bit more of a viable option for them to run a secure service on it. It's the people making the decisions as well, educating them, because it's not the engineers generally that are helping build the services or use the components that are involved in those decisions it's you know um people that are less known to um be involved in engineering and you know those technologists that aren't technologists lauren um that that are effectively making the decisions based on prior art so they'll just copy the same kind of procurement same kind of rules that happened last time because nothing went wrong apparently <laughs> but things could be a lot better but there's no visibility of that or you know helping those decisions yeah, and I think it is that thing of, of an EPR procurement seems to be something that once in a um, once in a career thing for somebody in the NHS. So it's not as if you can really build up much tacit knowledge within the organisation about how to do it and how to do it well. So there is something about information sharing that goes on around, you know, how how do you do this? How do you sort of miss you know sort it all out and the NHS is not very good at learning from failure because you kind of have to put your big hand up and say do you know what I screwed this up and I found that a lot easier since I've not been in the family to be like oh I didn't do a great job of that um but yeah I think there has to be somebody taking accountability for doing the education that's why your tech spikes so just going back to that accountability and failing why can't you fail in healthcare I mean fail 
before you move to production. So, you know, smart teams building technical spikes over very short periods of time to prove out concepts, use open source systems, and, and basically say, does this thing work? Yes or no. That, you know, it could be a failure, but you could have learned a lot during that time. It doesn't need to be a production system that you, you go in straight to that is a big bang five-year release that we're kind of used to. Yeah, and, and I think it's one of those things that, that there's this issue um, internally to the NHS because it's it's bound to agenda for change, which is essentially the pay scale. It's really hard to be able to recruit people in to be able to de-risk it. So there's, there is a culture of outsourcing on all of these things because people, again, if you're a software developer, you know, is the NHS on your big list of people that you want to work for or is it Google or, you know, whatever, depending on how how old you are. Um, so I think there is a real a lack of talent in being able to support this and being able to give the option to people to say, if it does fail, we, we can do something about it and we can use open source properly because if it does screw up, we can spot it and we can amend it and we can fix it. I think it is generally a culture of outsourcing for that for that reason. And this is where consultancies, you know, they do have bad rep um, every now and again. And, you know, some of them are bad. Um, but using consultancies and bringing in their experience um, as partners and, I mean, working with them to do particular jobs and saying, okay, we've used these packages before in, you know, these large banks, these financial institutions are using it. Having that knowledge and understanding of, of some open source packages, um, as long as it's, you know, a, a sort of blended team with, for example, NHS Digital to make sure that they understand exactly what they're doing, what the process is, um, and bringing those tools in and those skills um, in-house. No, don't necessarily need everyone at NHS Digital to have worked on a million systems in a million different sectors. There are times when you can bring in that sort of expertise. And yes, I do work for a small consultancy. Just put that out there. Yeah. But I do think it's about, say, it's about knowledge transfer, but it's someone to have it to transfer over to. A lot of the NHS organisations I've worked at just don't have massive technical teams. So it's that whole thing around who, who has it? Like, who who do you give the ball to? Who, who are you able to sort of coach and mentor to make sure that they're making the right decisions, which is why I think these decisions are made that are absolutely mad because, A, people don't understand that there's an alternative, and, B, either they don't have enough faith in their internal teams or their teams aren't kind of big enough or aren't punchy enough to to be able to stand up and say, we really want to do this, we'd actually find this really interesting and it would help some with some staff retention because we'd be giving them some cool, interesting stuff to work on rather than just being a, essentially a glorified asset replacement schedule um, house, which obviously not all NHS IT teams are, but some of them are. And um, if you don't have a, a leader who's got a bit of vision and, and who kind of knows what what's what. Oh, here's SharePoint. You'll barely need to touch it. It does everything out of the box. <laughs> no, I could absolutely shoot out on that. Um, did you, but, did you uh, swear, Lauren? Was that a swear? Oh my, oh my swore down my jump. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you said SharePoint, that's a swear word. Oh, the S yeah. word, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, thinking you can run it all on Excel. Depends how many rows you have, but yeah. Oh, I just get like clammy thinking about that. But but I do think I think just thinking about I guess where the future is and what we think we can possibly, you know, what could we do? I I think there is something about education and de-risking of it all, um, and just feeling how people can, you know, you know, get some credibility and just feel like it's not 
you know, let's say that that kind of random free-for-all where somebody just opens the door and just says, oh, just take what you like, you know, that it's a little bit more regulated and a bit more controlled than that. Unfortunately, it requires that sort of senior tech leader within healthcare to actually say, you know what, I, I have faith in this particular way of doing things. I want to run this project in this way and sort of, you know, stick the neck out and, and do it. Unfortunately, that, that doesn't happen very often. Um, we are moving into a world where a lot of people now are technologists because younger generations moving through and are starting to eke into those more senior positions. So my kind of hope for healthcare in the future is we'll have people maybe even with, you know, software engineering backgrounds that are in senior technology positions within the NHS um, that are able to make you know, some of these decisions. We've talked about this before, and it's uh, we've seen it ha- happen a lot in uh, in other industries already. I'm wondering why healthcare seems to be a little bit behind on this. Well, would you move to a, a position in, let's say, um, a healthcare provider now, Andy? Depends what the job was, but probably not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does depend what the job is, but I mean, it's not the first place you go out and look for a role is it you wouldn't think oh i wonder what you know nhs trust x or nhs digital or nice are hiring for at the moment that that's just kind of not the way that that, that it's kind of set up at the moment so that it is taking longer to filter into the public sector and particularly healthcare yeah and in lots of tech um roles or senior tech roles like director of it or, or cio may not even be a board voting position so it's hard to feel like you're able to have an impact if if the the structure of the organisation doesn't recognise your talent. It's starting to change, but I think it'll be a while before that's a board position or a board voting position so that those voices are in there. And I'm not sure, and I could very well be wrong, I frequently am, but I'm not aware of any chief executive in an NHS organisation who has got a technology background. They tend to be clinical or financial which is not or an, uh, a chief operating officer but they tend to come from that kind of triangle and therefore will will prioritize those things because that's what the regulatory regime has been and that's what people get fired for screwing up on it you know it's overspends cqc ratings or um any for our targets for an example um and i just think that nobody was ever fired for buying a crap EPR system, even though it's the second biggest capital spend after building a new hospital, but it doesn't seem to be a sackable offence. It's it's a really weird set of set priorities around you can screw something up that has 15 years worth of pain for like everybody in your organisation. It just doesn't... Because it didn't change anything, Lauren, that's it. You just carried on with the same old. No one gets fired for, you know, doing the same thing again. I mean, I would fire them, but... I would find myself as well if I if everyone was like, do you know what, you put this new system in, it's shit and we don't understand what we have to do and it's it takes 15 clicks to get through so we can input patient like basic patient information. Like I would t- I would just take myself out of the building. Um yeah, I'll do it for you, it's all right. We'll we'll can make a pact now. <laughs> That's fine, it's official. Um but I I think that there are ways of say there are things that change, but I think someone's going to have to really take a risk on it um, or and publicize that they've made that risk and publicize that it's gone. Okay. So there'll be a lot of, I think a lot of eyes and a lot of weight on a n- small number of projects around people who really want to kind of back it. Um, I think it's, I say it's just really difficult. I think to see how, it, how it will get better, but I do think there has to be somebody who will, you know, who will champion it and who will be taken seriously. 
You can tell that you're leading, Lauren, because that was a long chat about the NHS. <laughs> I'm sorry. I say I'm not sorry. It's important. No, no, we're sorry. No, no, we're sorry. It's important for all of us, but I, I do think, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot to be said around how that can be made better and how it can make, you know, general public services, um, you know, better and more responsive to people and, you know, building on what's out there. It just seems to be a lot of vanity projects all across government, which somebody has to be responsible for um, and put that name above it and talk about how they delivered x and how they did it all on their own um but yeah i think unfortunately the success stories don't get as much traction and press as the the sort of horror stories so and and they're often skewed as well the the one that i kind of remember is when airbnb who are you know big open source contributor um they used to use react native for their mobile apps and they did a big blog post one of their engineers saying I think it was a four-part post saying how they're sunsetting it and moving away from it. What people don't realize is, you know, that is a pro- effectively a product, an open source product written by Facebook. <laughs> so it's like, oh, but Airbnb aren't using it. Oh, we're not going to use it anymore. We're worried about it. It's like there needs to be a little bit of um, due diligence and understanding around things and not just read all of the um, the news that's skewed because it's interesting and and the success stories kind of filter out to the bottom. It's like in the NHS, you know, no one dies and um, everything just worked. Is not really a, <laughs> let's pray, let's praise everything. It's a, you know, the never events and things that happen. Yeah, I do think it's that, but I also think that there is something where marketing get hold of it and it just becomes like quite fluffy um, and it just becomes a little bit insincere. So you read these kind of paid for contributions and some of the stuff and you just kind of read it and you're like, that was clearly written by a PR department. And I think it it just comes across as less, less somehow less useful um, because it's like, you're like, yeah, I bet it didn't happen like that. I bet there were some problems rather than this kind of perfectly veneered um, situation, um, which is on those press releases. Maybe it's like my British cynicism that comes through on that, but I always read that and go, yeah, but... I bet there were some problems on release that you're just not admitting to. <laughs> yeah, it's one thing there's definitely a bonus with uh, open source is you're not paying for a uh, marketing team uh, or a sales team or all of the whining of dining that you get to get with uh, certain tech companies who have considerably larger, big entertainment budgets than tech budgets. Yeah, yeah, true. I guess I'm always, like I say, my cynicism radar is always kind of triggered by some of those things where you just go, okay, righto. Um, but, yeah, I agree that the, the it just worked doesn't seem to be a particularly gripping story um, and doesn't kind of grab the headlines. Um, but, yeah, it's for another time, I think. Um, I think we've got we've got quite a lot of comments and kind of questions and stuff in the chat. So just thinking, would, I'd encourage people to get get more in thoughts, feelings, and comments. Um, but yeah, should we start to go through some of those as well? What would be really great is if people actually wrote them in question format right now. I mean, there's there's quite a lot of very good comments and a lot of stuff that I agree with. I could add additional comments to, but if there's any kind of particular questions, um, there's a, there's oh. a very great good question. Here we What's go. The best, 
<laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the best question. <laughs> that I've selected um, as the first one. Uh, Andy, do you want to take that one? <laughs> <laughs> Is it one of mine or I one think, of yours? No, yeah. I think it's yours from about, was it 15 years ago on, on SourceForge? Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, some uh, Windows shell extension that... Um, uh, allows you to encrypt a file just by right-clicking on it and saying encrypt and putting a password in. Um, yeah, that I wrote 20-odd years ago. That uh, Yeah, it's still partly on SourceForge, and someone even downloaded it recently. That, that was me, because I wanted to take <laughs> <laughs> No idea why they did that. <laughs> Very certain it doesn't even build anymore. <laughs> it's all right. I'll give you a pull request. What, what version of Windows was it? 98? <laughs> yeah, it will have been, yeah. They're probably about right, yeah. <laughs> Uh, best open source projects, it's kind of hard because it depends what, what sector is and what you're using. I mean, for me, it's um, crypto libraries. Um, unfortunately, uh, you kind of want some of that stuff to be well-tested and well-trodden. Um, there are some uh, that you don't really like, like OpenSSL, that is definitely not the best <laughs> sort of open source project, but is, um, it is a bit of a nightmare, but I wouldn't want to write it myself. Um, someone says it's Git. So Git itself is the best open source project. It, it's quite a meta. That is quite a meta answer. But yeah, I agree. It, it, it is open source, Git. Um, yeah, I'm not a huge, huge fan of Git. I was prefer Mercurial myself, but... Uh, <laughs> SVN, let's go back to that. Uh, we've got a question from uh, from Simon. Um, what do you think about internal open source in large government organisations to encourage reuse? Well, why why is it internal? Why does it have to be internal? Is that just for discoverability? Because um, I mean, it could be in the open as long as you've got a way of making sure that other people within the large organisations or cross government um, have a way of discovering those services. I mean, I've I've been in a meeting before where someone said, "Well, if we get MuleSoft in." It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> and that was almost the answer to discoverability, which I still can't quite wrap my head around. Um, I think there are better ways of making sure that people understand exactly what um, is developed in, internally. But you do have that not invented here, even within teams, within large government departments, and it doesn't work the way they want it to. And you end up with that uh, XKCD. There's now 100 different components that do exactly the same thing. But I do think that when you've got smaller people who want to innovate, so, for example, if you look at some doctors and trusts who have got some really good ideas, if they could find more stuff in open source, I think they could probably make some of those things better and would would almost like, you know, use a developed software, you know, more likely and then more likely to be used and tailored. I also say that internationally, there's a couple of really interesting stuff that the international governments have done, which I think probably people should be looking at as well as our own because you know very few problems are new or unique to one country or, or sector or organization someone somewhere's probably fixed it it's just a question of finding out where and how good it is and whether or not you back yourself you reckon you could do better well, people need to stop reinventing the wheel um or thinking they're special i mean designers that think they're special and design something in a way that is completely unique is probably not the best way of doing it for their particular service because it's something that you know other people are not used to using. Do not create a brand new interaction method. Yes, even if it's absolutely fantastic, the user will not be used to that particular way of interacting. 
Apple have had handsets in people's hands for a very long time. There's a lot of standard controls and components that you probably want to stick with now and not reinvent that wheel. Yeah, we're fairly well versed in how hands and eyes work. We should probably use some of that science to base how the interactions with the software work. Yeah, and also with that, if in doubt, go with what the, uh, the 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 big companies are doing with those sort of things. The big tech companies are doing with those kind of things nowadays because they've put the research in, they've worked it out. You know, they there's no point us redoing it, especially no. if that's not where we make um, where the company for makes their money. You know, they're not. I mean, Most, very in, few few companies are Apple or Google. If it's in interaction design and that is your company and you're literally coming up with new innovative yeah. ways of interacting, then maybe, you know, you've got some eye tracking software or something to do it. Fair enough. Um, if you are a small government department and you're spending too much time figuring out whether the menu should go at the bottom via fly out or across the top. I mean, I, I remember 10 years ago sitting down and building a menu bar across the top and going, well, Google have just introduced it. They probably did some research on that. Let's just have a menu bar across the top. Yes. So, right, well, what other questions have we got? Um, Lucy on IPR and open source before that one as well. Uh, oh, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll go back to that one then. Um, open source, open standards. So open standards, particularly sort of open data standards, I'm 100% advocate of um, because it's hard work to define a data model. If you've got a known area like healthcare um, or travel or whatever it might be, having that um, data model or um, even protocol, wherever it might be, open as an open standard means you've got increased interoperability um, and you're not having to, like we said before, reinvent the wheel all the way from the ground up. Someone else is doing that hard work and you can open source that open standard as well and allow contributions back on novel concepts. Yeah, and I think on the open standards, I say 100%, there's loads of stuff, which is mad that there aren't open standards for, say, medication dosing being one of them. It's absolutely mad that in primary care and in secondary care, they are done on different ways. So it's really hard for you to get your dosage from one care setting to the other, which I think is bizarre and obviously creates lots of clinical safety issues because is it a microgram is it a milligram who knows um not great um so i think yeah open standards in parallel with open source um but if i had to pick one you know at least you can you can measure someone against open standards and it, it's not even reinventing the wheel it's like guessing is there a wheel what is it um that open standards would help you with and good quality open standards as well. Uh, the, your, your comment there about milligrams and micrograms reminded me of almost exactly that. Uh, an issue I had once when I uh, uh, you used a, it was sort of an internal open standard. It was kind of a standard that was used within inside the organisation. Um, we didn't have uh, units on a particular uh, flow flow rate, the reading from a machine, and uh, one machine would give. Um, in uh, milliliters per minute and one was in microliters per minute and uh, i was told asked when i asked how do i know which one it is i was told oh well the bigger machines just give you bigger numbers yeah andy what <laughs> so that's is that like open standards being used incorrectly almost because i've seen that a lot yeah. uh, or people trying to morph what they've got into an open standard um and sadly when that happens it kind of ruins ruins it for everybody. So, for example, um, FHIR, a very, very huge, that's F-H-I-R, 
um, is a is a huge, huge standard um, that designs everything except for pretty much security. <laughs> Just kind of hand waves that and says, oh, that's an implementation application issue. Um, but it implements everything else and you know has its has a very comprehensive data model. What you can often find is when you've got such a big standard, people say, right, we're going to pick that standard, we're going to run with it and use it. And then they'll try and shove whatever they want that they've got into that thing because they're using it for something else. And actually they're kind of misusing what it was designed for just to kind of use it for everything. So it is about selecting the right open standard as well. Or open standards, it might not just be one. They, they can go the other way as well. You can end up with um, standards that are uh, give you some uh, give you some sort of guidelines and then uh, they will then allow you to extend them if necessary. Um, I know one that uh, I'm sure Ryan's thinking about in the comments at the moment, Zigbee, has, has some interesting – it's not a bad standard. It just has some interesting things. Like if you decide there's a – if you're a, a particular type of widget that uh, fits the well-known uh, widget standard, but you've decided you want to add just a little new feature to that widget, uh, you have to create a completely new type of thing, which then makes it totally incompatible with everything else that knows how to talk to widgets. Uh, it's it's that's an example of of a not a bad standard that can that because it's extendable in a in a not helpful way it it's not going to encourage reuse in fact it's probably going to discourage it because then what happens is people say why don't you just use zigbee <laughs> you can do that and then you end up with a whole bunch of things that are not compatible with each other but they're using zigbee yeah and well which version of zigbee or, or which profile of Zigbee, and that becomes the issue. And so like Fire, for example, has uh, custom profiles that you can put on top of things. But when we were chatting before about the sort of managed service wrap, if you've got a Fire-based service, you might not support custom profiles or <laughs> things like that. So you could have an open standard that people barely use. They use the extensions and develop on top of it, which is then not supported and non-standard by everything else and doesn't validate and doesn't do all the rest of the other. So... Yeah, this this is why we have you know leaders in technology that go you know what this sounds like it this sounds too hard <laughs> I'm just gonna just gonna hand wave this and go go with them you know that big uh, ERP system or whatever it might be um, and instead of actually going right okay technical due diligence what should we use what shouldn't we, what shouldn't we use how should we use it um, and do some tech spikes trial it with customers and then eventually move to move to actually something that's better than what we currently have. I like Ryan's comment that says uh, that uh, a standard, this is a fire standard, it's so large you could run Quake on it. <laughs> yeah. I definitely do, anyway. So uh, Lucy's messaging me and saying, why is my question not getting answered? So, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because, Lucy, you've been listening earlier, we already discussed this. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, Andy, do you want to answer that one? <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm really qualified for that one. To be fair, um, I, I mean, inter assume you mean intellectual property rights uh, with IAPR. There, uh, I mean, you are not giving it away. I think that's probably the some the one thing it's worth being clear about with open source. You still own it. You're just letting people. You're licensing it to people. Um, so it's not quite the same as public domain. Uh, however, there's nothing to stop people stealing it uh, or using it without your knowledge. Um, that, that's a bit about the crown jewels before, and that's the argument, the counter-argument I had a lot is, well, what if somebody just takes all that code? Under, trying to understanding and, and trying to explain how that works is 
is is complicated. Um, the other thing about IPR is if you are um, an agency or a consultancy and you're working for a customer on a time materials basis, they own the IPR to that code. So you might not be able to open source it. You'd have to have explicit permission. Um, then you have the complexity of if you're using an open source project yourself and you decide to fork it for, and you do work on it for that customer, that customer would then have to approve you to do the pull request back into the main repository, which is obviously less than ideal, but completely achievable. And guess what? The first time you go through the pain and do that, the customer will probably see the benefits and then it's not a problem again. You can have, you know, the contracts and legal set up. I think there's also that thing about when it stops, you know, how how things change and when does it become kind of IPR become applicable? Because if you're just using it and running it without any changes, that's one thing. But again, it's those improvements and pushing that back in that is, you know, a key differentiator between like the IPR um, kind of approvals and also, again, how it's been tended to some of those like government framework contracts mandate a load of stuff in terms of IPR ownership, which kind of doesn't really care or doesn't make any reference to if you're using open standards because they're the same stuff that's used for any kind of intellectual property stuff, any consulting service. So it's not really written for um, software engineering, you know, as a specific set of service. It's just like a general contract. And I think you probably, you know, we've had a lot of conversations. I've had a lot of conversations wherever I've worked about how all of those things need to kind of come together to make sure that it's kind of de-risked and everybody understands what's being used how it's being used and who owns what and I think having that conversation at the start rather than at the end where you have to do that push back into the repository where everyone's like hang on a minute what um or oh, by the way we used all these open source components the client's just not aware of it I think it's I think those those conversations kind of up front those crazy agiles you know with the let's just use this because we decided on this sprint yeah yeah and I'm sure there'll be um one that um marcus is aware of is is listening kind of recent thing where someone made a, a responsible disclosure on something that was was kind of online uh and the company is a community interest company bizarrely um has, has issued some fairly significant letters and threatening all sorts of stuff around foundation of deletion and confirmation around all those things so it does again those things around responsible dis disclosures and open source stuff around stuff being there seems to be biting people in the arse more than it really should be around people just kind of trying to do the right thing. So that was actually a really good question, Lucy. Sorry that I missed it. <laughs> um, Have we got any any other um, any other questions that anyone can see? That's uh, Timbo Sonic uh, raised a question at six eighteen quite quite a while ago now. Six eighteen, uh, which uh, I think is is worth uh, talking about. How do you help and remunerate those devs that give you tools for free and maintain for free? I think it's a great question, actually. Um, I certainly, when I first heard of the open source as an idea, the idea always seemed to be to me that um, the idea is it was a collective thing. So you would you. If you were, if you used open source, you would feel obliged to contribute something else to the open source community. Um, that doesn't seem to work very well in practice. I don't think there seems to be a lot more. There's a lot more give than take in open source, definitely. Um, uh, however, you know, there's also financial remuneration as well. A lot of people like, uh, to, uh, 
companies have Patreons and things like that that you can support, or they have proper financial backing with uh, uh, commercial organisations that uh, you can offer support and things like that. Um, there's simple I think... things. Sorry, oh, sorry. I was going to say there's the simple things like buy me a coffee or buy me a beer link that you can stick on the readme, but... To be honest, um, Chimbo Sonic, when I find out I'll get any help or remuneration, I will let you know. <laughs> I think there's also some say, basic stuff which doesn't really pay the rent, but I think that contribution to those sorts of things do, you know, does help people in, in job interviews, is particularly where you're able to submit that as part of, you know, what you do and showing a, a level of contribution as well. So it's not great and it shouldn't be expected of people. But if those things already exist, I think it's a good way to kind of demonstrate your thought processes and how your coding works and, and, and those sorts of things. Because we did a previous episode on like hiring practices and how sometimes it's mean just to give someone an hour to say, show me how you would work on this i think that's another good way of demonstrating you know how you work and i guess the quality of, of some of the work that you produce which i think could help people in, in getting other other jobs but I say i don't think it should be um necessary but i think it's helpful it is helpful i mean sometimes people will say um they feel at disadvantage because they've not had the opportunity in past employments or whatever to be able to open source stuff. So it, it is kind of nice now if I'm interviewing someone, I will do a cheeky sort of search around, see what they might have worked on and contributed to, but it isn't a, um, a huge factor. And, you know, if someone doesn't have that, it's not counted against them, so to speak. Yeah, it's a, it's a useful shortcut. To, it can save a bit of time. You can see some code that that person's written. Sometimes, though, they don't want that code to be seen, though. I've written some, uh, there's some stuff on my GitHub that I probably should take down because I'll never get a job again if people look at it. That's the one thing I've learned from this episode is go go back to GitHub after this and just have a quick look and see what some of the comments are. Is this even maintained anymore? <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, the same thing. I, I would never uh, say no to someone because they didn't do open source contributions. Uh, but uh, certainly having seen see some open source contributions you can you just get you know what sort of things they write it just helps you it, it just it's a bit of a shortcut to knowing whether the person's any good or not i have actually had somebody um when i when i did a number of sort of cordova open source plugins um which was the right thing to do at the time was open source them because you're probably only implementing a small amount and people add extra bits back to it had somebody who i won't name the name of basically copy clone the entire repo not fork uh, and just change the uh, license agreement and the name uh, on it and publish it as their own so that they could help win work for their consultancy. So they did change it so that my name was added to the bottom <laughs> next to their name after I kind of mentioned that it was maybe not the right thing to do. But, um, yeah, there are there are practices like that as well. So you've still got to do your due, due diligence and check, did that person really write that and are they who they say they are? Kind of them. Yeah, I was very pleased with the result, actually. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest now, I think, yeah, I wish wish that I'd have just let them take ownership of it. But anyway. (laughs) Another one, I say, from uh, Ryan Irons, public sector application code. Um, absolutely well i mean gds specify that if you create a new public service it must be um open source or coded in the open 
um, for other people to look at. And every project, pretty much maybe bar one that I've worked on or, or overseen in the past probably couple of years have been coded in the open. How discoverable that is, um, is, is another matter to Lauren's earlier point. Um, but if you are creating a GDS service and you're going through discovery alpha and beta, there are very, very strict um, requirements around being able to pass and push those services into alpha, beta, and live. And one of them is that you must code in the open or have a good reason not to. I, I can never actually think of a good reason why a public service should not be coded in the open. I mean, if, if someone has a very good reason, I would love to hear it, but I can't think of one. So I would love to see anybody that's passed the GDS assessment <laughs> of a service um, that's a new service recently um, that, that that's passed that isn't coded in the open and why they passed. It's an interesting one because there was all that controversy around the COVID tracking app because that was all promised to be published in the open and it took a really long time for that actually um, to to kind of turn up. Um, and for people then to be able to spot some issues in it. And I think that did did add to it and people were able to, to sort of contribute and, and change stuff. But again, you know, it was one of those things that was live and everybody was like, is it coming? Where's the gear repo? Like, when are we going to start to see some of this? Because it was so high profile, there were so many eyes on it that I think it did help to get some of those things ironed out quite quickly. Um, and for people to actually understand what it was, so what you should do is open source it right from the start. Otherwise, you have that, oh, I don't want to show you yet. Oh, I'm a bit worried. And you know what? There was reasons why they were worried about open sourcing it, which then became obvious. And then, in fact, they looked a little bit silly for it. So I remember there was a, a little bit in the code where it says, this is a hack around local, local notifications to try and keep the Zigbee alive that does this. It's like, if you're doing that and you're ashamed of it or you think that you probably shouldn't be doing it, then you probably shouldn't be doing it, never mind open sourcing the code. So I think there's potentially other reasons why things don't get open source. But if you do it from day one, it keeps you honest. It's a public service. You're paid, you know, via public money to produce that service. If the rules say code it in the open, code it open from day one or do a different job. Yeah, there was definitely some code annotations in that, which was very much a, a internal comments only when you're kind of reading through it and thinking, oh, I'm not quite sure you ever thought that maybe couple of hundred thousand people might be able to have a look at this um but yeah and, and I think that that shows around I think some of the naivety around what some of the people who were probably developing that thought would be on it and the level of scrutiny because yeah you know we're all sitting there waiting going come on show us what you've been doing <laughs> show we, we've been doing for this past few months Ryan's followed up and said it stopped people putting keys into git fortunately it didn't I've still, <laughs> I've still seen that <laughs> That's what that responsible. Well, part of what that responsible disclosure was about was about keys and get. Yeah. So, um, I didn't. <laughs> Sadly, no, I mean, there are automated checks and and pre-commit hooks and things that you can have to prevent that from happening. Even GitHub itself has scanning for things like credentials. But I've seen credentials in Word documents pushed to Git and all this crazy nonsense like that, or in images and things. So, there's only how open. Like, how open source do these things have to be? I mean, uh, can you get away with uh, send us a a, a self addressed stamped envelope and we'll uh, print out the code and send it to you? Is that enough? Well, so they say it has to be coded in the open. It doesn't mean that the code needs to be made open source in the future or mailed to somebody. For me, coded in the open is a very specific 
we will be pushing our commits to a public repository. I mean, that's just my correct interpretation of the room. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's certainly the how it's intended to be. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just it not has, the spirit you know, of the open source, what the other people are doing, right? <laughs> someone, someone sends me the paper and the ink and a printer and... Uh, and, uh, and a courier to come and collect it. I'll print out some source code and send it to you every day if you want. <laughs> yeah, it's minified and or, or or transpiled or something as well, and it's yeah. point zero font. <laughs> <laughs> no, it does make me think about all my awful um, teenage bands that I was in, and I was convinced I was doing copyright by sending myself the kind of lyrics and the the note music. Um, yeah, in the post, and then. You know, put, putting a sticker on the back to so if anybody did ever steal my what were absolutely atrocious songs, I could kind of wave a second, uh, you know, a second class envelope from like 1998 and say I wrote it first. Um, but yeah, that's obviously not what we're talking about. But it's very reminiscent of um, the ways that I would have inured myself against any copyright theft of my. Yeah. I, I don't know, but I want to go and find these envelopes and open them. One because it'll be funny to open them because then they're not copyright anymore. But also to read what was in them. <laughs> These magical lyrics. The problem with lockdown is my dad has actually found that in the attic and he's threatening on it. So I'm glad that he doesn't really understand how computers work that well because otherwise I would be in a lot of danger. <laughs> we can fix that. Please don't. Um, I'm not sure we've got um, any more questions now. Um, so I'll give it a couple of minutes. We'll say a couple of seconds for people to get any more sort of final questions they've got in. Um, but I think um, our next one of these is going to be in a fortnight's time. So same time, same place. Yeah, two weeks. Next, next week. Keep talking about next week, but we mean next, next week. Um, that was the hand movement. That was uh, the hand movement I was talking earlier. You have to do that when you say next. Um so it would be lovely again if we would see and also if there's any things that you want to hear our inane burblings about we'd be more than happy to to comply um and we're on twitter so feeling underscore techish um and yeah just say let us know what you thought on there um obviously i shall not be sharing anything about my sort of teenage angst on there um and yeah the the plan is at the moment to do things live from here on out um lee's denying it's got anything to do with the editing backlog um so we're gonna we're gonna that. one day there will be a twitter campaign to release the lost episodes <laughs> I, 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 will, I will i will i will edit them now that i've got all my time back. release the crosley cut release the crosley cut <laughs> Yeah. I, I can't remember what they're on now, to be honest. Maybe, maybe we'll just maybe we'll just pretend that they're much alive now. Um, is everything live from now on? Yes. If you think this wasn't too bad, <laughs> I guess even even though we've only had about ten or twelve viewers um, at various different points, I think that um, we'll still be pushing out the podcast to the regular old channels, so you can still listen in the old-fashioned way of offline and audio only. So you don't need to see our Ugly, ugly mugs yeah and and just a little reminder at the end around a disclaimer so it's our personal views not of any current or former employers friends family or pets um so that yeah please basically please don't sue us is what we're saying that these are all our intensely personal opinions and um nobody's 
endorsed us in saying these things. So we're just kind of saying what, what we think and feel. Um, I don't even endorse my own views or believe in my own views half the time, yeah. and it changes throughout the episode. So that's yeah. it's open source, push to commit. Yeah, <laughs> you can just change it whenever you want. <laughs> yeah. Right, pushing to master. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Bye.